What's going on, guys? Welcome back to The Control Room. I'm your host, Israel Johannes. Now, Saturday, December 2nd, there were two games that we had back-to-back in The Control Room. We had the Pelicans and the Bulls for Ballet Sports New Orleans, and then we had the Thunder and the Mavericks, which were on Ballet Sports Oklahoma and Ballet Sports Southwest, respectively. How it was structured so that we could have enough crew was that since the Mavs were at home, they would do their studio shows from the truck. So that allowed us to offload the crew that we had into every other show that was going on. We also had a football show going on in the other control room. So both basketball shows had to share one of our control rooms. And we had three graphics people available Two of them were doing two football shows. So that left me to do both basketball shows. And I happened to be by myself. So how did that factor into the chaos of all the hot switching? What happened was the the Pels and the Bulls started off. We did their pregame. And then an hour later, the Thunder and the Mavs were set to tip off. So that show started an hour after the Pelicans show started. And since I was on the Thunder side, I was doing all the Oklahoma City stuff for the broadcast. That meant that when the Pels pregame show was over, I had 30 minutes to switch over, get everything ready for Oklahoma City. At first glance, you might think that that's not a lot of time. For us, we've... We've been through tighter schedules, but this is probably the tightest it'll be all season where there's a 30-minute increment to make sure everything is all ready to go. But most of that day was spent preparing for the Pelicans pregame and then making sure that I was prepared for the Thunder pregame before both of those shows were on the air. Once that was taken care of, then the Pelicans show was done, moved on to the Thunder show, that was done, and to help with all of the chaos that was going on in the control room in terms of having to put so many shows into one room, halftime was done from the truck so that we didn't have to have a situation where both games needed the studio at the same time because let's say the Pelicans were in post-game and the Thunder were coming up on halftime. Because they share a control room, you can't do both of them at the same time. So to mitigate the risk of those conflicts, you have halftime come from the truck. So the Pelicans truck took care of the halftime, and then the Thunder truck took care of their halftime. All the mass stuff was done from the truck in Dallas. So then what happened was the post-game show had to be prepared. And the Pelicans and the Bulls had so much going on with how the Pelicans were up at the half. And so initially, there was a plan as to how we were going to talk about what the Pels were doing right, how well they were playing defense. And then things kind of took a turn in the second half. And then it got worse in the fourth quarter where Kobe White just went off and had season highs and multiple categories against the Pelicans that day. So that changed a lot of the a lot of the elements of the show 
that we had prepared, including graphics, where I actually have my rundown here so that I can at least figure out and read off what I had to do. I had lower thirds for for uh, Zion Williamson, Brandon Ingram, DeMar DeRozan, Kobe White. All of them had big games. And then there was a full screen that I had of Jonas Valanciunas on one side and Nikola Vucevic on the other because in the pregame we teased a battle of the big men. But then Vucevic actually didn't have that well of a game. It was more of Jonas kind of dominated in that area. But the guards took over at the end of the game. There was next game promo, which is what we do almost every show where we just tease the next game. We showed the quarterfinal schedule of the in-season tournament because the Pelicans were in the knockout round at that point. And then some bumps. By bumps, we just mean graphics that show what's coming up next. You see that all the time as shows go to commercial. Those are normal graphics that I'm prepared for that I know are coming. And so it's just a matter of actually making sure that they're built and that they're buffered so that when it's time to animate them onto the screen, that they don't have any very many glitches. But then there was one that I came up with that I spoke with my producer about, and it was about the Pelicans three point defense, which is what I'd been saying on this show for the last few weeks. But the ranks were added to this graphic of how well the Pels were playing in the first quarter and the second quarter from a three-point defensive perspective, and then how it dropped off in the third and then slightly improved in the fourth, but not by much. At that time, between the second and third quarters, the Pelicans' three-point defense was first in the NBA in the second quarter, and then it dropped all the way to 24th in the third. And it helped explain how the Bulls were able to kind of explode. What didn't make sense was that the Bulls are not really a three-point shooting team. They're more of a mid-range team. But if they can get hot from three, well, guess what? They'll shoot the three, and that's exactly what they did. So all of that was happening for the first show. Meanwhile, the Thunder were up by at least 20 on the Mavericks. Going into the fourth quarter, it looked like this game was all but done. So on the Thunder side, we were saying, okay, now that Pelicans is done, we can strictly move on to Thunder. And then the graphics that we had built, the concepts that we were going to talk about were strictly going to be about Thunder and how well that they had dominated that game. And then the 30 to nothing run happened. So as every bucket is being scored for the Mavericks, and as every bucket is being missed for the Thunder, as that run keeps growing, we're sitting there in disbelief as to how, one, this is even possible in the NBA, and two, how the entire show is getting changed in real time. This stuff happens a lot. The 30 to nothing run does not happen ever. It was the first time in NBA history since the play-by-play era started tracking in 1996, 1997, that a team went on a 30-0 scoreless run. So this is unprecedented. At the same time, Luka Doncic had a 30-plus point triple-double, tying Larry Bird for ninth most all-time in that game, and was the spark of this comeback. 
So everything was changing on a whim. If it were a Thunder game by itself, then that's something that would be, that's something that we could track throughout the game. Now, the producers, there's one for New Orleans and one for Oklahoma City. So they at least had an eye on it. The analysts for both of our shows had an eye on their respective games. Because I was doing both, I had to rely on them to let me know what I was missing by working on the other show. So there were moments in the Thunder game that I couldn't see because I was on the air for Pelicans and vice versa. All that to say, we made it through and it was actually a great day. We had great shows. There's so much to talk about. So I really want to break down how that how that Thunder game, that Thunder Mavs game, even happened. But first, I want to send my congratulations to two Mavericks, Luka Doncic and Dante Exum. They both became fathers with a baby girl uh, in the last week. So congratulations to you both. I have no experience in fatherhood, so I don't know what this experience is like. But I can tell that those two guys are happy and watching them play on the court after returning from the birth from the respective births of their daughters. They they just seem really happy. So congratulations to you two. Now let's talk about how this game even happened. Because it was just it was ridiculous. Let's start off with the fact that Kyrie was not able to play because of his foot injury. And then this was Luca's first game back after his daughter was born. Dante Exum was also unavailable because his fiance was giving birth as well. So there, there's a lot of there's a lot of stuff happening with some of your guard play in terms of who's available. But having Luca back gives you a chance no matter what. It's just that the Mavs are not at full strength in this situation. So one other detail to keep in mind was that for the rest of the Mavericks, they were on a second night of a back-to-back after losing at home to the Memphis Grizzlies, 108-94. to And then in the first three quarters of this game, the Thunder and Mavericks game, the Mavs shot 25 of 60 from the floor, which is 41.7%. Kind of low when looking at the teams in every team in totality. However, they shot 14 of 24 from two, which is about 58.3%. That is pretty high. And they generated 28 points off of those twos. And they shot 11 of 36 from three, which is only 30.6%, which is well below their average. But they generated 33 points off of threes. It just took a lot more attempts to get there. Also, defensively for the Thunder, what they did was they double-teamed Luka, and Nancy Lieberman broke this down as the game went on. Because they double-teamed Luka, and Kyrie wasn't on the floor, the offense had to come from the result of those double-teams. And it was just a matter of, were the Thunder able to switch to the next player, or move their defense in a way where the Mavs were uncomfortable shooting. 
And the Thunder are a physical team. They've given the Mavericks problems in the past. Last season, the Mavs and the Thunder went into overtime in Dallas because the Thunder went on a huge scoring run that even forced overtime, and then they eventually won the game. Because of that physical play from Lou Dort on Luka Doncic and how that team, how the Thunder were playing defensively, you add Chet Holmgren to, to all of that, suddenly this is a different beast, right? Because now you have someone that can counteract Derek Lively the second, and Chet Holmgren is fifth in blocks in the NBA. That, that's across the entire league, let alone rookies, where he's second. So having to deal with this Thunder team forced the Mavs to, I guess, miss shots. I mean, you got to credit the Thunder defense as to how well that they played on Luka and the Mavs. So these double teams led to three-point attempts that, although are the Mavs bread and butter, they just weren't making them. And when you quote-unquote, live and die by the three. If you can force them to take threes and have them miss, you're going to be in really good shape, which is how they were able to get off on that, on that big margin. The Mavs also had a negative four rebound differential at 40 to 36, and in their miscellaneous category, they scored seven points off turnovers. Also, Davis Bertans, who was a part of that trade that sent the number 10 pick to Oklahoma City, and then the number 12 pick from Oklahoma City went to Dallas. Davis Bertans was moved so that the Mavs had more cap space for free agency. Obviously, they had a priority to re-sign Kyrie Irving, and they didn't have the cap space necessary to hold Davis, and so that was part of the deal to move him so that the Mavs could open up that wallet. Well, the Latvian laser found a way to make the Mavs pay because he scored 15 points on three of three from three-point land, right? 15 from three of three. Now, how does that make sense? Well, he also went six for six from the free throw line, added a rebound, an assist, and a steal. So Davis... There's not much more to say about what he did on the floor. He did all that in the second and third quarter because he didn't play in the first and he didn't play in the fourth. Right? So to do that in two quarters and to have as much energy as he did moving around the court, I don't know what it's like to be traded. I'm not a professional athlete, but what Devin Harris said when he was traded to the Nets for Jason Kidd was that he circled the Mavericks game on his calendar and basically played out of his mind as a way of saying, are you sure you guys made the right decision? Eventually, the Mavs did win an NBA championship. However, that's how players are, especially when they're competitive. When, they are, when they're that competitive, if you get traded, you circle that game on your calendar, and you say, okay, next time I see you, I'm going to make you regret that decision. So Davis was able to make a contribution to the Thunder where having having his scoring on the floor helped boost the Thunder in, in the second and in the third, helped extend the lead. And then eventually the Thunder closed it out, but 
not before this historic fourth quarter comeback. So the Mavs went on a 30 to nothing run to take back the lead. It's not like they went 30 straight and still didn't have the lead. They were down by 24 when this happened. The score before the run was 111 to 87 OKC. After the run was over, it was 117-111 Dallas. That doesn't make sense because it's never happened before. It was the longest scoring run without allowing a basket in NBA history in the play-by-play era since 1996-1997, which I had said a few minutes ago. Per the NBA, the previous record was 29-0. It was a 29-0 run by Cleveland against Milwaukee on December 6th, 2009. And I cited my source that came from the Associated Press. On top of that, remember how in the first three quarters I had said that the Mavs only scored seven points off turnovers. In the fourth quarter alone, they had 16. So they finished with 23, and really that fourth quarter run helped the Mavs change the way that they played defense on the Thunder. Including that defense was double-teaming Shea, Shea Gilgis-Alexander, the way that the Thunder double-teamed Luka. Because by double-teaming Shea, he's the one that makes the offense go, and he leads the league in drives. He has the most drives per game. So when you cut that off and you force the ball out of his hands, the rest of the Thunder have to figure out a way to move the offense. And that is difficult to do when... Shea has a higher usage rate than most players in the the NBA. On top of that, the Thunder just couldn't score a basket. I've said repeatedly that last season the Thunder were the worst in the NBA in terms of restricted area field goal percentage, so buckets right at the rim. They just weren't finishing. And although they've improved to about 18th or 19th place this season compared to last season, The percentage jump is only about 3%. They were 62% last year. They were about 65, 66% going into this game. So those struggles showed a little bit more, including Lou Dort, who went 0 for 7 from the floor. He didn't score a point. He went 0 for 3 from 3. And he had been used as a primary defender on Luka all game long. Now, as I had said prior, Lou Lou Dort's primary role is to take away Luka. If he can add scoring, great. But primarily the first priority is to take care of Luka Doncic and then provide help on the offensive end. Now, that 0 for 7, 0 for 3, uh, over, over seven from the floor, over three from three, where he scored zero points. That was in the fourth quarter. It wasn't across the entire game, but it was in the fourth quarter. But that contributed to the scoring drought, and that helped the Mavericks come back. Now, the Thunder ended up winning the game, but it, it was mainly because of Chet Holmgren and Jalen Williams, J-Dub, Jalen Williams, where Chet had five points, two for four field goals, three rebounds, one assist, and two blocks. While J-Dub had six points on two for five shooting while making two free throws. And those two guys really helped spark that 15-3 run to end the game in the final four minutes of that game. Defensively, 
you wonder how in the world Chet can block so many shots. Well, the Mavs got a quick taste of that because in one of the play senses that we did, which is how you'll you'll see a play and then it'll freeze and then you'll see arrows showing where players are going to go next and analysts will break down exactly how defensive and offensive schemes work in that situation. So in that play sense, Nancy broke down how Chet's block, well, he had multiple, but one of the blocks that he had had such a high vertical. He's a really long guy. I mean, he's, he's over seven feet tall. The way that he blocked a specific layup in the last four minutes, the ball was so high at its, at its apex that it seemed impossible for him to reach. But he reached it with ease. I mean, he went straight up, but for him to be able to block that kind of a shot and then to do it again from behind and then the ability to force shots to change just because of his presence, Chet is a difference maker on any team, but especially on this Thunder team. And that led to the Thunder being able to finally get back out on the fast break. And that allowed J-Dub to score an easy bucket. And that finally ended the drought so that the Thunder could settle down. And then by settling down, they could then focus on the task at hand, which was to retake the lead. Eventually they did, and they won by six. On the Mavs side, you can look at many different factors as to why they lost this game. The very fact that they went on a 30 to nothing run to take the lead by six showed that there are so many elements that they can lean on, so many statistical categories that they can say, okay, we can, we can optimize these things against this specific team. And then wherever they have issues, they can just improve on those and it'll help them in the next game, the next week, the next month, so on and so forth. So there was one specific category, as I've mentioned before, whenever it comes to constructing graphics and constructing concepts. And one of the things that I talked about for the Mavs was their free throw shooting. In this specific game, they shot 23 of 35 from the free throw line. That's only 65.7%, well below the average. So they missed 12 free throws and lost by six. This is only the second loss this season in which free throw misses were more than the point differential. But they had had some of these games last year where free throw shooting, had it been improved, had it been better, they could have won more games than they ended up winning last year. This year, they've done better from the free throw line. However, if there was one thing that they could look at and say, you know, what came back to bite us? The free throw shooting is more of a collective. It's not like you missed 12 free throws and that's what lost the game in the final four minutes. The final four minutes was the culmination of everything that happened up until that point. But an emphasis on just making sure that you can be more efficient from the free throw line can help mitigate that comeback from the Thunder so that when you go on a 30 to nothing run, you're not only up by six, 
you're up by 15. But this was just one game, still in the first quarter of the season. Spoiler alert, they won the next one by 50. So it's not like this is a recurring problem over and over and over. One special stat that I'd like to break down a little bit is Luca and his triple doubles. Why? Because, good Lord, he had 36 points, 15 rebounds, and 18 assists versus the OKC Thunder. That was his 59th career triple-double, and it tied Larry Bird for ninth most all-time. He's fifth most among active players. Russell Westbrook has 198. Nikola Jokic at that time had 113. LeBron James with 108. James Harden with 74. And then Luka Doncic at 59 with that triple-double because he got another one the next game. Now, that was his third triple-double this season. And it's the second most in the NBA behind Nikola Jokic, who at the time had eight. And it was Luka's 33rd career 30-point triple-double and his 18th career 35-point triple-double. I mean, it's, it doesn't make sense that he's able to do this as many times as he has, but that's the greatness of a generational superstar. Need I say more? I don't think I need to. Now, with Kyrie out, where did some of that offense come from in that Thunder Mavericks game, at least for Dallas? Derek Live of the second had a career game against the Thunder. He played a career-high 39 minutes. He scored a career-high 20 points on a career-best 9 of 9 uh, field goals. He had a career-high 16 total rebounds and a career-high 7 blocks. Now, this is an interesting thing that I went to look at. His seven blocks were the most blocks by Maverick since Samuel D'Alembert, which D'Alembert had seven blocks on March 23rd, 2014 versus the Brooklyn Nets. This also ties the most blocks by a Mavs rookie in franchise history. The only other Mavs rookie to do that, have seven blocks in a game, was Bernard James, February 22nd, 2013, at the New Orleans Pelicans. This rookie is insane. What, what can I say? He's good in the pick and roll. He's good on defense. He's good at finishing. He's, he's good at blocking. He can, he can get rebounds. This is everything the Mavs were waiting for. What they were missing last season. To have all of that come from one player... The development of Derek Live of the second over the summer since he had been drafted has contributed to this, and his mentorship with Tyson Chandler has obviously played an effect because he is making an immediate impact, and the Mavs will be all the best for it. So, all that to say, special shout out to Derek Live of the second. Keep playing the way that you are, because good things will happen when you have a great big man. Again, as I said, Kyrie Irving was out with a foot injury against the Thunder, so not having him 
hurt the offense in a way where they weren't able to move the way that they did against Utah in the next game. And also Josh Green is now out for multiple weeks with an elbow sprain, a right elbow sprain. So not having him on the floor is going to hurt the Mavs in scoring and in their perimeter defense because in the next game, Grant Williams went out. He did not play because of a knee injury. So not having Maxi, not having Josh Green, not having Grant Williams. Those are three of your best defenders on the perimeter. So to, this is similar to last year when you lost Maxi to a torn hamstring, you lost Dorian Finney-Smith, and for a time you lost Josh Green as well. The Mavs are going to go through a similar stretch as they did last year where they had to adjust to not having those key players on the floor. This time, though, they do have Derek Lively, and they are a more well-oiled machine because of the retention of Luka and Kyrie. They're more comfortable with each other, so that offense can flow a little bit better. And so I briefly want to touch on the Jazz game. And that game was, that game was sick. The Mavs won 147 to 97. (laughs) And Luka had another triple-double, although this time he did it by halftime, get a 29-point triple-double at halftime, which was the first 25-point triple-double in a first half in NBA history since the play-by-play era started tracking in 1996-1997. He finished with 40, which became his seventh career 40-point triple-double. There... There's so many so many extra stats to talk about with Luca's triple doubles, but the main thing to know is that with that triple double, he is now at 60 in his career, which passes Larry Bird for ninth all time. Luca's been Luca's in his sixth year. He's in his sixth year. It just started. And he's already at 60. He's averaging about 11.2 triple-doubles a season. So although I'm not exactly sure if he'll get to Russell Westbrook's number of 198, that is more attainable from Nikola Jokic. But Luka will well have more than 100. He will finish top five in triple-doubles by the time his career is over. Because what he does, how he is on the floor, offensively, There's a reason he's called Luka Magic, and I just can't stress this enough. He's a generational talent that the Mavs are lucky to have. And he's the difference maker on this team. Now, albeit, it's great to have Kyrie Irving too. He had 26 points, but it's almost like no one was paying attention because of Luka's triple-double. However, having that tandem, starting with Luka, and then with Kyrie, and then having your pick-and-roll player, your best defender in at the, at the rim with Derek Lively, and that entire cast, that entire roster, this team is going places. So just keep your eyes on the Dallas Mavericks.
The Thunder as well. They uh, they had a that was a really great win against the Mavs because when you get hit with a thirty nothing run, naturally you'd think they would fold, especially with how young they are. But they came back. They were resilient, and so that is a team to keep looking out for. They have a seven and three road record, and the way that that team plays is. It's loose, it's free, they complement each other well. Coach Mark Dagnall has found a way to really optimize everyone's game, and they've been one of the best in the West all season long so far. So I expect that to continue as long as everyone stays healthy. So just keep your eyes on those two teams. And I'm not going to leave out the third team the New Orleans Pelicans, because they've got an in-season tournament game later on Thursday night. But we're going to talk about the New Orleans Week 6 in the next segment. So stick around. All right, let's talk about the Pelicans and Bulls game that I had mentioned at the top of the show. In the first half, the Pelicans led at a halftime 61 to 53. And they outscored Chicago 30 to 20 in the paint. They had only allowed 7 of 22 from three-point land, which was about 32%. And in the second quarter, which is where the Pels are the best in the NBA, they allowed only 3 of 13 shooting, which was 23.1%. And at that time, the the Pels' three-point defense in the second quarter was at 26.4% throughout the whole season. The second half is where things went awry, where they allowed 10 of 18 from three, which is 56%, and five of nine from three in each of those quarters. So 55.6% in each of those quarters. Now, they outscored the Bulls at the free throw line, where they shot 21 of 23, which was 91.3%. That's what you need to do if you want to win games. Unfortunately, the Pels were on the unlucky side with this one. Chicago only shot 7 of 10 from the free throw line. And then in the second half alone, the Pels gave up 11 second chance points. Then Kobe White. had season highs in points, field goals made, three-point FG, and rebounds. So he had a season-high 31 points. 28 of those points came in the second half. That's absurd. That shouldn't happen. Even with the Pels' defense in the second half, in the third quarter, in the fourth quarter on the road, that shouldn't happen where you give Kobe White 28 in the second half. And they know that. He had a season-high 10 field goals made, season-high 8 of 13 from three-point range, and a season-high 9 rebounds. So that Kobe White lower third that I made, there was a lot of highlighting going on because he had four of these categories where they were all season highs. Now, it's not, it's not something that I have to harp on very much because, at least with the Pelicans, the way that they've been able to bounce back they're not having these five-game losing streaks multiple times. They were dealing with injuries. They weren't healthy at the start of the season. Right now, they're mostly 
mostly at full strength with the returns of Herb Jones, CJ McCollum, Trey Murphy the third, Jose Alvarado. And then with Zion and Brandon Ingram leading the way, you got you got a stacked roster for this Pelicans team. So it's one game, let it go. Know what you need to fix. Move on to the next game. And boy, did they. Because the, their in-season tournament quarterfinal game against the Kings, the Pels were already 2-0 and versus the Kings this season, although both of them were in New Orleans. So this is the first game that was in Sacramento. Both teams had a lead of 15 at one point in the game, so it really could have swung either way. Notable stats to know is that the Pelicans outscored the Kings in the paint 52-38. to Great advantage, especially when you have Zion and the other team has DeMontis Sabonis, who is incredibly efficient in the paint. And then from two, the Pels shot 33 of 56, 58.9%. And then from three, they shot 14 of 31, which was 45.2%. So the Pels were clicking on all cylinders on offense. They were making a bunch of their twos, making a bunch of their threes. Now, how about that defense? They held Sacramento to 14 of 41, which is 34.1% from three overall. But what, where it really came into play was in the second half because they held Sacramento to six of 23, which was 26%. And it broke the three-point defensive trends for the season. And by that, I mean, as I've said in weeks past, in the first quarter, the Pell's three-point defense is is somewhat average. It's 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 above average in terms of uh, in terms of the defensive side. And then the Pell's jump to the best in in the league. Actually, based on that Bulls game from the previous from the previous game, you had the Pels ranked 4th in first quarter three-point defense and then first in second quarter three-point defense. So they actually were really really good. And then throughout the season the Pels dropped to 24th in the third and then 20th in the fourth on the road is where it gets a little tricky because for some reason, the Pelicans three point defense gets worse as they move into the third quarter. And then into the fourth quarter where they were allowing close to 40% from three in the fourth on the road. So to hold Sacramento to six of 23 at 26% from three in the second half, completely broke that trend and allowed them to win the game. Because without that defense, without that defense, Sacramento has a, has a much larger chance of actually taking that game from them. That final was 127-117 in favor of New Orleans. But it could have been a lot tighter had Sacramento made more threes So credit to the Pelicans defense for actually bucking that trend and improving their second half defense, which is what they needed to do all season long. 
So this is a great start because now they've got the Lakers coming up. So let's break down the three-point defense for the Pelicans through 22 games. Their opponent three-point field goal percentage on three-point field goal attempts in the first quarter is 34.3% on 10.6, which is now ranked seventh. In the second quarter, it's 26.4% on 10.7 attempts. That is still first. They're still the best in three-point defense in the second quarter. In the third, it jumps by more than 10% to 38.4% on 9.2 attempts, which now brings them down to 22nd. And in the fourth quarter, it's 35.5% on 9.6 attempts, which is 16th. Now, this is going into Wednesday's games. These don't include the, the shift in ranks from all the games that happened on Wednesday, December 6th. However, this is pretty close considering the Pels didn't play, yes, uh, didn't play on Wednesday. And then it'll adjust after they play the Lakers on Thursday. Now, for the Pelicans, I've mentioned the returns of key players such as Herb Jones, CJ McCollum, Trey Murphy III. So let's break down a little bit for each of these players. Herb Jones had a season-high 23 points at the Kings, and New Orleans is now 8-4 and four since his return. He's their best perimeter defender, as I've said in the past, as Aaron Hardigan and Madison Hawk and Nancy Lieberman and everyone that's been on a Pelicans broadcast has said, without Herb, that defense isn't as stout. And so he is the biggest difference maker when it comes to preventing other teams from getting on a scoring run, from preventing other teams from exploding. And it's really shown statistically. And on the results, you see it with that 8-4 and four record since he came back. CJ McCollum had a team-high seven assists, scored 20 points in his first game back from the collapsed lung versus the Spurs, and that game was at home. He couldn't travel to Chicago because he was not cleared to fly at that time, according to Jen Hale, the sideline reporter for the New Orleans Pelicans. But he was cleared to fly to Sacramento for the following game. And so when he came back, he scored 17 points on 7 of 11 shooting, 3 for 5 from 3. And that again, this is his first road game since that collapsed lung. And now he and the rest of the team will be in Vegas trying to do the same. Trey Murphy III also played in his first game this season against the Spurs. In that game, he scored 18 points on 7 of 13 shooting, 4 for 10 from 3. And let's not forget, he had a meniscus surgery. So, for... I've, I've obviously never torn a meniscus, but a knee injury is not something to play with, especially when you play a sport like basketball. When Aaron and I had asked Madison Hawk about what it's like to come back from a knee injury of that magnitude, she had mentioned how a meniscus tear might not be the worst thing to go through. If it's not severe, you can play through it from time to time. But when it needs surgery is when you need to monitor the, the health of the player and 
how soon they can come back. And so this was, he'd already missed considerable time going into that Spurs game. But for him to come back and to shoot this well, it's a sign of his health. It's a sign of the recovery that he's gone through. And it's a sign that he can keep this up as the season goes along. One important stat to note, and Jen also said this on the broadcast as we had it on the graphic when she was on the air, New Orleans is 9-1 and one when Trey Murphy III attempts 10 or more threes in a game. In his first road game back since his injury, which was the Sacramento game, he had 16 points on 6 of 13 shooting, and he shot 3 of 8 from 3. He had a game high plus 24 plus minus, which meant that while he was on the floor, 24, point, 24 more points were scored for New Orleans than they were for Sacramento. Plus minus can be an empty stat for some people. It also needs to be brought within context. Now, when they become outliers, such as a plus 24, that's when you know when Trey's on the floor, things really got going. He wasn't the only one with a great plus minus. Jose Alvarado, who also came back from injury from missing all those games early in the season, had a plus 19. He even had one of those pickpocket steals, that Grand Theft Alvarado type of steal. So he's back to his old tricks. It's good to see this team thriving right now because they have a semifinal matchup with the Los Angeles Lakers in Las Vegas on Thursday night. And we're going to talk about that in the next segment. Let's talk about the in-season tournament. The NBA Cup is up for grabs. And the last eight teams made it into the knockout round and then fought for a chance to go to Vegas on Monday and Tuesday of this week. So on Monday, the first two games that were played were the Pacers and Celtics and the Kings and the Pelicans. So the Pacers beat the Boston Celtics 122-112, to and they advanced into the East semifinal. And then... New Orleans beat Sacramento 127 to 117 to advance to the West semifinal. Then the next day, on Tuesday, the Milwaukee Bucks took down the New York Knicks 146 to 122 to stamp their ticket into Vegas and play the Indiana Pacers for a chance to reach the in-season tournament championship round. Following that game, the Los Angeles Lakers beat the Phoenix Suns 106 to 103 so that they could match up with the New Orleans Pelicans in Vegas so that they could have a shot at the in-season tournament championship. So these games, by the time you hear this episode, one of the one or both of these games will have already tipped off. One might already be final. However, the semifinal in Vegas on Thursday, December 7th, will be the Pacers and the Bucks at 5 p.m. Eastern on ESPN. And then the Pelicans will play the Lakers at 
9 9 p.m. Eastern on TNT. Then Saturday, December 9th, the NBA Cup Final will be in Vegas again. And it'll it'll be the East winner versus the West winner at 8.30 p.m. Eastern on ABC. And next week, we'll recap everything about the in-season tournament, especially the knockout rounds. So that is something to look forward to next week. We'll recap week seven for every team, or at least for the three teams that I cover. And then we will finish off the in-season tournament for its inaugural season. A personal note for me, I would love to see them actually take off the name in-season tournament and just call it the NBA Cup. Somewhat like the World Cup. That's just me. Adam Silver has already talked about, or at least he's acknowledged, the pushback about the point differential. I think going into the next season, I'll bring up what Candace Parker said on TNT after one of these games where it's possible that you could use the actual regular season standings as a tiebreaker. And Adam Silver's reasoning for using point differential is that it's one of the point differentials, or it's one of the tiebreakers that's used in soccer. My only pushback to that is that goal differential in soccer makes more sense because it's much harder to score a goal. They are few and far between because scores are like two to one. Whereas in basketball, you have so many offensive possessions that it can get out of hand really quickly. And in soccer, really, once you, if you score a goal when you're down, depending on that margin, you might have a chance to come back and draw the game or even win the game. That's how powerful one goal is. Whereas points in the NBA are plentiful. So I don't exactly buy the logic of having point differential as a tiebreaker in a game where the spirit of the game doesn't want you to run up the score on your team on your opponent after it's all but decided. So it's just something to debate about going into the next tournament, the next season. But for now, I would say this is a great in-season tournament. This brought a lot of hype. This brought a lot of attention in a time where most people don't pay attention to the NBA because of the NFL going into its playoff push. Now that that is... Now that that is through, let's finish with the Cowboys. Why? Because I do this every week. The Cowboys outlasted the Seahawks and they host the Philadelphia Eagles on Sunday night in Arlington. There was a free agent from Indianapolis, Shaq Leonard, who had a chance to sign between Dallas and Philadelphia, and he eventually chose Philadelphia. Okay, Dak Prescott is playing out of his mind. In my opinion, he's got to be at the top of the MVP voting. Really, I have him. And then I have Tyreek Hill after him. Then you start looking at Brock Purdy slash Christian McCaffrey. Remember when Tony Romo and DeMarco Murray were splitting votes? That's what I think will happen between those two. Then Jalen Hurts and then Patrick Mahomes or Lamar Jackson. 
after that. So I don't really have Jalen Hurts and Patrick Mahomes that high in the MVP voting. I have Dak that high. I'm not even saying that on a bias. He is one of the best quarterbacks this season in multiple quarterback categories, including QBR and passer rating. And if he continues it while he's playing teams that are above 500, such as Philadelphia, Buffalo, and Miami, and Detroit, then that will only further, that will only strengthen that argument that he could win his first MVP this season. But again, it's all played on the gridiron, so they have to go out and execute. Last but not least, we will talk about the national and local NBA tip-offs. Friday, December 8th, the Los Angeles Clippers will play the Utah Jazz. Now, the Clippers are coming off beating Nikola Jokic and the Denver Nuggets. Nikola Jokic actually had a triple-double in that game on... Wednesday night. But the Clippers found a way to hold out for the win. They, they came back. It wasn't, it was more of a back and forth affair, but in the second half is where I really started to pay more attention. The Clippers were able to come back and take the lead for good, eventually win it with some free throws. They, at that point, it was out of reach for the Nuggets. They're playing a team in the Utah Jazz who got beat by 50. Without Laurie Markkinen and Jordan Clarkson, by the way. But this is going to be an interesting matchup. That game will be at 10 p.m. Eastern, 9 p.m. Central on ESPN Friday. On local TV Friday, December 8th, the Warriors will visit the Oklahoma City Thunder that game will be at 8, 7 Central on NBC Sports Bay Area and Valley Sports Oklahoma. And finally, the Mavs will play the Portland Trailblazers at 10, 9 Central on Valley Sports Southwest and Root Sports. So that is it for me. Thanks for watching. Thanks for listening. Thanks for continuing to show up and consume this content. I see the numbers go up every, every day, every week. So shout out to you guys that are still watching, listening, consuming everything. I enjoy having you guys on. Be ready for next week because there's a lot to talk about and I can't wait for it. So this is Zit. This is The Control Room. I am your host, Estrada Johannes, signing off.